Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I think there is something about having the distance from slavery to say, when I look at that monument, I can separate that from the horribleness of enslavement, that really what you're saying is I don't have any skin in the game of that conversation. And I think one of the things that is always the crucible for humanity, especially in a modern society, is are you willing as an individual, as a person, to sacrifice for something for which you don't have any skin in the game? That, dear listeners, is one in-demand sociologist and author. She's been on The Daily Show, Fresh Air, In the Atlantic, Slate, Barnes & Noble, and New York Times. She travels between Richmond, Cambridge, Mass., D.C., N.C., and she's here with us for the hour. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson. Since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwoods and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in studio here in Richmond, Virginia, is none other than Dr. Tressie McMillan-Cotton, an assistant professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University. She's a faculty associate at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and author of Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy, which hit some months ago. How are you, Tressie? I am well. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, my gosh. I've been badgering you for months over Twitter. and (laughs) (laughs) Not badgering, not badgering, but very uh, happy for the invitation and glad we finally made it happen. Well, the thing is, you are in demand. I mean, I saw you on The Daily Show. Heard you on Fresh Air. You've been giving speeches. You shuttle between here and Boston. You grade yeah. papers. Yeah. You're in the Atlantic. You're in Slate. Um, I can butter up your resume as much <laughs> as you want, but I'm I'm really impressed. And then I mean to think about your biography, how this book was informed in your past life mm-hmm. as an admissions person at mm-hmm. for-profit colleges. Tell me what the whole experience was like. So when I think about my time working in a for-profit college, I worked for two um, before I went back to graduate school and got my PhD and became a sociologist. So the way I remember it and understand it now is quite different from how I knew it and understood it when I was living it, right? Which is actually kind of part of the story because in many ways, working in a for-profit college, um, I was very similar to my prospective students in that I did not have an understanding of uh, the school as being distinct or different from traditional higher education, even though I myself had gone to a traditional college, right? I went to a historically black college in undergrad. And so I knew it was different in that, you know, people enrolled in it differently. I knew that the campuses were different, but I didn't have any concept of these schools being um, different in price, uh, outcomes, prestige, people's perception of them being um, distinct from their perception of traditional higher education. So when I'm working in for-profit colleges, I was very similar to my students in that the term, the, the, the language of for-profit meant nothing to me. 
just like it didn't mean anything to the students. We never used that language, right? It didn't resonate with anyone there. We it, at most would say something like we were a career college, perhaps, um, but we did not have language of it being for profit, um, which is actually one of the things that I critique um, in the book and throughout my work, which is without the language to even talk about why these schools are distinct in some meaningful ways that matter to their students and that matter for us as a society that invests in higher education, that without the language to say, well, what does it mean when we say for profit? Um, And why should people be thinking in those terms? Um, We kind of need to start there by building a public vocabulary because we really just didn't have one. Um, But my day-to-day job looked like uh, trying to convince students who had seen one of the commercials, right? Call now, change your life today, start school tomorrow, one of these. Mm. Dial this 1-800 number, change your life. Um, Well, when you dial that number, someone like me answered the phone. Uh, And when I answered the phone, my job was to try to get you to the point of completing all of your enrollment paperwork and starting school as quickly and efficiently as possible, which on its face doesn't sound like anything particularly positive or negative. It was just a process. But was it a pressure sale? But I was just, yeah. So the difference, though, is in what our what our ultimate motivation was. Um, so especially in the larger for-profit college that I worked in, in the book I call it the, um, the technical school. The technical school is similar to those that you see in the tele- in the, all the national commercials, right? These are the big corporate, um, publicly traded, most of them, um, for-profit colleges, the ones that grew the fastest mm. um, uh, in the last 15 to 20 years of for-profit higher education. And the ones that I think we just really think of when we say for-profit, the ones that tend to get in trouble often, um, the ones that we sort of design regulations for, those kinds of things. So the the technical college was one of those. And enrolling students in the technical college, in part because they had to pay so much attention to sort of quarter-over-quarter profit margins, right, being driven by the fact that they are publicly traded – had developed a very high-contact, fast um, uh, sales process uh, to enroll students, very much like I the thing closest to it that I've ever personally experienced is like a timeshare mm-hmm. sales experience, right? You know, one of those things where you're supposed to sure. be there for a vacation, right? And the next thing you know, uh, you've got some slick man telling you about <laughs> how it's for $18 a month, right? You and your family can reconnect with each other for twice a year, right? For three days. And don't forget about the, the free lunch, best, the, the free right. lunch at Ponderosa. The free lunch. Uh, and I don't borrow much <laughs> from my economist friends, but it, it may be true that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, right? But Uh, It was very similar to that, right? We want you to make your decisions immediately, right? We want to tell you how this immediate short-term decision can change not only your life today, but in the long term, right? Um, So having this sort of immediate sales pressure, um, but trying to keep the prospective student's eye on the long-term horizon, very much like timeshare sales, The beauty college was different. The beauty college was not corporately owned, wasn't publicly traded, had been in sort of the local community for a long time. It was smaller. It wasn't offering degrees. Mm. It was offering what we would call a credential or certificate to work in a particular job, in this case, to be a cosmetologist. Uh, Those students were just very different than the ones at the technical school. And I think because the financial incentives were different at the beauty school, we did far less selling of those students and more of what might look 
like to, to people familiar with traditional college, more like a counseling function, mm. right? We sat down and we talked to the students about what they wanted to do with their lives, right? There was no penalty for saying to a prospective student, hey, this may not be the right choice for you, right? Um, or think about it and come back and tell me about it later when you feel what, comfortable. What's, what, what, what blew me away in reading your book is that so many people are oblivious to a rather omnipresent public option. Mm-hmm. You can go to community college with which with you know many, many places like I grew up in Miami, Miami Day Community College, mm-hmm. enormous enrollment. There's no shame in doing it if you get an associate's degree, if you were behind in high school. It's just like a bridge toward a four-year university education. Here in Virginia, we have an amazing loophole. You must know that you can go to any community college, and if you maintain something like an A-minus average, you get guaranteed admission. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? Like to UVA, to William & Mary, your choice of school here. have transfer. And um, I just remember it being so stigmatized. In high school, Hmm. you know, we had friends. We played pickup basketball. We played softball, um, you know, friends that were going to go there different ways. A lot of people were going to go to University of Florida. Some people were going to go out of state. Some people were going to work for their parents. There were some vocational options, but not as great. Mm-hmm. And then a person who was lost in his mid-20s, you thought he was the guy who was going to call up like Apex Tech or yeah. one of those schools or Corinthian or something like that. We never really stopped and realized that there was nothing wrong with using that kind of that mm-hmm. on-ramp to the associate's degree. Right. Well, you know, a couple of things have happened at the same time. We really got had this sort of perfect storm for why for-profit colleges became such a default option for millions of people. And one of them is sort of the changes that have happened in public higher education. And some of those changes really impact community colleges in particular. Mm. So at the exact same time that millions of people for the first time in their working adult lives needed some sort of certificate to stay employed, right? That's what's been happening, what's increasingly happening for all of us, by the way. It just always comes for the poorer people first, but it's it's coming for all of us. It's an indicator species, really, it is. That's right. So at the same time that was happening, um, state after state was disinvesting from their public higher education systems. And that really, really harms community colleges in particular ways. Community colleges don't have big endowments, right? So, you know, they can't just draw um, the money that's sitting there to sort of make up the differences and shortfall from um, state investment. Um, at the same time, we were asking more of those community colleges to do more, right, to prepare people faster, um, to serve uh, increasingly sort of fractured sort of labor market needs. We need to train uh, millions of people, but in like 20 different jobs simultaneously. So our demands of community colleges really ramped up. And our understanding, like you said, of what community college and what the public higher education option meant kind of got lost in the mix. Mm. So for prospective students are still very much operating under that pre- what I, we call the prestige hierarchy of higher education. That was really true in the 70s and 80s. But by the 90s, it had changed, which was that there was, like you said, no shame. There was lots of return, economic return, to getting an applied certificate, an associate's degree. Sure. But our language hadn't caught up, right? Our language says go to real college. Go to the best college your money can afford. And the worst part of it or the most dangerous part from my perspective as a sociologist who cares about inequality is that we started to say to people the most expensive college is usually the best college. Mm. Right. So from lots of people's perspective who don't have firsthand experience of higher education because their family members didn't attend and their friends maybe didn't attend and they don't know really how to navigate it. What they hear is you're supposed to go to, quote unquote, real college. Right. And 
if it costs a lot, that probably means it's really good. That's the that's something that's so embedded about education is this willingness to pay. You've seen the mm-hmm. stats outstrips the rate of inflation by so much. I mean, mm-hmm. you've seen in the Great Recession, we were told that there was a higher education bubble and people mm-hmm. would think twice about even in law school circles where mm-hmm. that whole model exploded. And yet there are still so many people that are willing to pay sticker price and then some and whatever mm-hmm. the annual increase is. Uh, because it's ultimately looked at as a wholesome investment. That's you see, right. it's not looked at as a racket. That's right. And I would think that if I'm being pressure sold into this versus a timeshare, mm-hmm. you know, the timeshare pitch is also when you when you appeal to that part of the reptilian mind where you're saying investment and money that's growing. Right. And I, I think that's kind of what makes education so peculiar. It is. It's what makes it peculiar and such an attractive investment vehicle for the financial sector, right? Mm -hmm. This is a really a huge part of it. There's just, you know, there's capital seeking involved here. What's really happening is where are you going to extract an extreme amount of wealth during a recessionary global recession, right? You only had a couple of places to go. You got to go where the government is because that's where lots of pools of money tend to sit around because the government is the caretaker for spending for social programs, right? Mm -hmm. And the government really only had a couple of things laying about with like huge pools of money attached to them. As it turns out, these also happen to be our biggest political fights right now, healthcare and education, Mm -hmm. because that's where government is still really central to how that money is spent and accessed, et cetera, right? So there's this tension between people um, or industry looking for ways to extract more profit from some sort of process. And frankly, if my choice is between healthcare and education, I'm going to go with education because of that very thing you just described. It's our faith in education that makes it almost impervious to the idea that you should somehow minimize your spending on it. Right. I got to tell you, I've been rethinking that. I'm an immigrant. I came here. Mm-hmm. I was always told, I've said on other shows, Drink milk, stay in school, uh-huh. don't talk jibber-jabber, uh-huh. um, you know, keep your head down, get That's into a great right. school, and everything else will open. And, and up until, I guess, my 30s, I put all that faith in higher ed. Mm-hmm. Pay whatever you can. Go to the school of your dreams. That would be your ticket. Mm-hmm. I have to say, like many in this country, and we've had episodes on this before, there's been a deflation of that dream because of mm-hmm. the paucity of opportunities uh, in the mm-hmm. wake of the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And this is what I worried reading your book is that there seems to be an enormous shift back to these elite public universities. Right. Like if right. you look at enrollment now at UVA, if mm-hmm. you look at enrollment at UNC, Michigan, Cal, mm-hmm. Cal Berkeley, USC, I mean, uh, a lot of the people that were only considering much more expensive private four-year liberal arts schools are kind of cramming into that opportunity. And we're worried about uh, the people on the kind of the marginal end of that, both mm-hmm. economically and maybe on the grade curve, mm-hmm. that they're now wondering what their options are if they're being mm-hmm. admitted out of that pool. Right. So the the changes that have happened, especially in uh, among, like you say, elite public universities. So these are these flagship institutions that are public, but let's be honest, in many ways operate like, like elite schools? private yeah. institutions. In part, that's why they become elite. I mean, you walk into UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah. I mean, you can't really tell the difference that or a Duke right. up the road. Right. Or, Except know, UNC Chapel Ivies. Hill is better. I'm sorry, I'm from North Carolina. I just That's have to right. make that you very do clear. That. As a Carolina fan, I do just have to make clear, other than the fact that Carolina is superior to Duke. But yes, your point stands. That's I thought, right. I thought the, the beef was mostly Carolina and <laughs> NC State. I always thought that. No. It is a Duke thing. No, oh, I thought, about I thought reading David Sedaris that it was an oh, NC okay. State. Okay, well, North no. Carolina David Sedaris is adorable because he has a personal investment in State. And don't get me wrong, we like to beat State. But beating 
being Duke is a religion. No, it is. Right. Okay. Uh, but all of that part aside, yes, what you have seen happen. But I didn't see any cinder Publix. block at UNC Chapel Hill. This was That's an elite right. looking, gorgeous That's school. That's right. That's what I, was I, I think they shampoo the squirrels there too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but they, they at least we allow our squirrels so that we don't make them wear the little tuxedos like they do oh, at Duke. Oh. But, oh, yeah, I've got Duke hate and shade for days. Everybody hates right. Duke. That's okay. all right. If they're good people, they do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not to make moral judgments or whatever. Please, please do. Uh, but when it comes to elite higher education and the pressures there, so this is what people are feeling. Those with the resources to do so are chasing what they perceive as a dwindling pool of good resources. Mm. Right. So now whether that's true or not, what higher education becomes is the great middle is the mediator, because really what people are chasing is what they think is a limited and declining pool of good jobs. Mm -hmm. And now there actually people are right. Right. That what we are seeing in the uh, labor market is this decline in high quality, high pay jobs that allows upward mobility. And so what people, especially parents um, who are subsidizing and sort of guiding their children's pathways through higher education are sort of accurately perceiving is you have to spend as much as necessary upfront on higher education to gain access to this dwindling pool of really good jobs. The pressure that exerts on everybody else is what you have described as elite public institutions have sort of start to chase the same students that elite privates have long just been sort of the bastion for, which are well-resourced, well-prepared, um, typically white, upper-middle-class um, and middle-class uh, students. What that means for the largest part of higher education, which are students who are not that, by the way, the largest percentage of students in higher education are uh, women, people of of color, first-generation students that we would consider non-traditional. That's the majority of higher education. What it has meant for those people, especially over the last 20 years, until maybe about three years ago, was that for those people who had fewer resources for figuring out how to go to college, it became a, a choice between going to school and going to whatever school you get into. Mm. And that's where lower ed or for-profit colleges really thrived. They thrived in this space where we have created demands um, for people who need more education without creating equal access for people to be equally trained for education. Sure. And then we attached all that money to it through the student uh, loan system. And in that space— Corporate higher education is going to thrive because you have people who have every incentive to go to school, few resources to sort of choose between Carolina and Duke. Right. What they're choosing between is ITT and no school, right? right. And, but they're feeling the same pressures all of us are feeling. Um, and those people are more likely to be women, more likely to be African-American, more likely to be Hispanic, more likely to be working class or poor, and really more likely to be parents. And mm -hmm. that's who we, we have funneled into what I call the high-cost, high-risk credentials. It's almost like a high-risk a high risk pool, right? That's exactly what it is. If you that's think about it in insurance in parallel. Terms, that's exactly what it is. Gosh, I'm much smarter than I thought I was, <laughs> Not me. You're exactly Gosh, reading your book, I, I was like, wow, are. the universality of this, Dr. Tressy. <laughs> we are here in studio with Dr. Tressy. McMillan Cotton, professor at VCU and faculty associate at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, author of the excellent book, Lower Ed. I'm highly recommending it. You must read it. Um, it's been covered quite a bit. She's been on various shows. It's been excerpted, I believe, in The Atlantic. I have to ask you this while you are here, mm -hmm. and this is harkening back to an essay that you wrote in Slate uh, mm -hmm. in December, kind of a month after the, the, the political shock of our lifetimes and Donald Trump pulling off that upset. Mm -hmm. 
This was a co-byline piece where you were interviewed. It says, I'm not your racial confessor, the black person's burden of managing white emotions in the age of Trump. And of Mm. course, how can you not click on something like that on Twitter? And I did. And I said, (laughs) Tresie McMillan Cotton said, oh, yes, black people have one primary job to manage white people's emotions. Their emotions are high right now. and We're being overtaxed with it. And our various levels of individual privilege circumscribe how much we can push back on managing their emotions. So... It is all over the place. Mm -hmm. I am not here to blindside you. I've begged you for weeks, for months to come on this show. But I have to make a confession. Mm -hmm. I have to make a confession. And it's not strictly just to Dr. Tressy. It's to the entire world here. And I am uh, an immigrant. I am Jewish. I am new to Richmond, Virginia, plus or minus. You know, I've been here for five years. Mm -hmm. And I have pain um, and pangs. Not only when I'm on Monument Avenue here, our gorgeous thoroughfare, which has statues of Confederate generals and the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, but especially when I'm down in Shaco Slip, uh, mm. the most historic part of town, where uh, I am both proud that there is an enormous Holocaust museum, mm-hmm. and I'm embarrassed that the deafening silence, there isn't anything that— um, Says it was one of the largest slave trading— Yes. In the country. Mm-hmm. Yes. Am, am I okay where I'm taking this? Yeah, sure. I'm not I'm not asking for assuasion of guilt or anything. I'm not a Richmonder. I'm not white white per se, mm-hmm. but it's very problematic for me. I've I've met business owners here who remember the flood of 2004, the great flood where the flood wall downtown worked against the city mm-hmm. and the rains were so enormous that you had, you know, 10-foot um, floods inside restaurants. One uh, gentleman who owns a property down uh, at the bottom of the city saw human remains coming up. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is in many respects like almost like a two square mile graveyard. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Lumpkin slave jail. Mm -hmm. um, You see the Goodwin slave jail. You saw, uh, you know, in in 12 years of slave, it mentions Goodwin slave jail. There is much that is unresolved in this Mm -hmm. city. And I think about that in conjunction with what's been going on right now in New Orleans, in Charlottesville, with the removal of Confederate statues. Mm -hmm. To the extent that you and I are here in studio blocks away from Monument Avenue, walk walk me through this thinking. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I was born in Iran. I'm Jewish. I'm raised here. Uh, It's it's a. I don't know if guilt something something's very wrong and unresolved, and I'm feeling Mm -hmm. it, and I'm wondering why this city as a whole isn't feeling it. Oh, wow. So why the city as a whole isn't feeling it is a— This is, after all, the capital of the Confederacy. This is the number two slave trading fortress, if you will, slave jails downtown. The city was, in Mm -hmm. many respects, built on slavery and tobacco. Mm -hmm. And yet we're not going there, where New Orleans is, where— Well, yeah, so I think it's a it's a few things. And I'm and I was a mouthful. I'm sorry. No, no, it's fine. I'm even newer to Richmond than you are and still finding sort of my legs in the community as a community member. So I always want to be clear that I'm not speaking as a Richmonder. But because of that, my perspective also might be valuable because I'm not a Richmonder. You know, I'll let the um, listeners decide. But I've been here about two and a half years now. And my personal history has always been sort of deeply entwined. I'm very Southern. Uh, My family is from North Carolina. We're squarely in that sort of great migration story of African-Americans in this country, moved north, uh, did the reverse migration back to the U.S. South. I'm very comfortable with the racial hierarchy of the South. I lived in California for a little while and I couldn't wait to get back to the South, right? (laughs) So, you know, for good, bad, or indifferent, I at least understand this place, Mm -hmm. even if my understanding 
means that I understand what racism is here. That's part of it. That's part of the story. So I bring all of that to my understanding of trying to figure out my place in Richmond and what the racial hierarchy is here and what the power dynamics are. And my experience as someone who's organized before and comes from a family that organized and participated in that um, is I'm still learning whether or not there is a community there, there are community voices here in Richmond, um, but the the social movements that were happening in New Orleans that made possible this past week where they um, have successfully sort of moved to start removing some of the Confederate monuments there has been years in the making. Right, that kind of thing doesn't happen overnight. It takes sort of sustained protest, activism, and action at a community level. In New Orleans, because it has such a deep, rich black community in that city, I think had the infrastructure to do that. Now, we also have a very robust African-American community in Richmond, but I also think that precisely because of our locations being the capital of Virginia, having our history um, being so central to the Confederacy, um, and the sort of systematic extraction of uh, black wealth in the city, which is also a part of the city's history, right? There's a reason why Jackson Ward becomes, you know, moves from being the, the center of historical black wealth and um, historic um, of black wealth and historic Richmond uh, to being one of the poorest parts of Richmond, right? That's a, that's a deliberate act of city planning to destroy mm-hmm. um, a black community. What that also does is it creates sort of a leadership vacuum, I think, of sort of community organizing that it would take to upend the sort of um, public memory of the Confederacy. Then you add to that, this is not just any other Confederate, Confederate, former Confederate place. This is the Confederate place, right? So we not only are dealing with whiteness in the United States necessitates um, honoring it, right? So that was always going to be difficult. That was always going to be a problem. So the monuments being anywhere is going to, you know, you're going to have a lot of people invested in them staying there. But here you have the veneer of it truly being about the history of this place in ways that are not true of some other states, right? So when you want to remove a, um, a Confederate memorial, for example, in like Missouri, you can at least make the claim like we weren't even part of this. Why do we have this? But in Virginia, we really are central to what the story Orleans, of Civil War. Well, again, I think New Orleans is dealing with post-Katrina, sort of different sort of political climate. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing the aftermath of, of disaster, you know what, the shock doctrine can also work in favor of social movements, right? It doesn't just have to work in favor of political and economic interests. When you've got a moment where something really major has upended the political and economic structure of a city, people who are are in place to organize can take advantage of that. And I think that's kind of what's happened in New Orleans. Mm. So at the same time where that creates a vacuum where they've privatized all of their public schools, it probably also, I think, created a vacuum where community members could sort of take the mantle and make some political progress on removing the monuments. Part of being in Richmond is that we're a good, safe, stable city, you know, relatively speaking. There's n- no reason to upend our political and economic system because we're kind of humming along. That's what I meant about us being sort of the center of the state, you know, being um, yeah, but so central the, to the state. I, this, this is what I don't understand. It, it, you know, you, in my years here, I've had to squint to find a Confederate flag. It's harder and harder mm-hmm. to do. You are far more likely to find a gay pride flag mm-hmm. or gay pride culture. Um 
This was the capital of the Confederacy, but this is also dangerously close to the Mason-Dixon line. I mean, it mm-hmm. feels sometimes like Northern Virginia. There are a lot of people coming here mm-hmm. from the North. Um, it is it is kind of homogenizing more. It's become much more of a blue state in terms of its mm-hmm. electoral patterns. Mm-hmm. The mayor is a young African American upstart, very close to Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe is not, a, you know, mm-hmm. a, a Deep South ideologue. He was a Clinton person. He was a mm-hmm. DNC person. He lives here. Um, I'm wondering what what makes this place so different. And and the other paradox is you may have been here when a couple of years ago there was a big debate. Do we attach this enormous slavery museum Mm -hmm. in that district to the building of a minor league ballpark? Mm -hmm. And what was amazing to me was the, the, the biggest pushback on that was on the whitest, wealthiest parts of town. If you'd go and you'd see all these banners, say no to the stadium, mm-hmm. say no to the stadium, say no to the stadium. It, there wasn't a there wasn't an organized African-American pushback on this. That No, this is being crammed down. This is rushed. We need something much more deliberative. And again, Tressie, I try to reconcile it with the fact that this was the number two slave trading post mm-hmm. that uh, so many people can tie uh, horrible, horrible situations in their ancestry to events that happen here in the 19th century and to, you know, a lesser extent, the 18th century. Um, and so I can't reconcile it. And I drive on Monument Avenue every day, and by and large, there are not protests. What you're seeing in New Orleans, what you just saw in Charlottesville a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago where there was a, you know, almost like a, a, a postmodern clan type rally mm-hmm. to oppose the taking down of Robert E. Lee's statue. I mean, Charlottesville has been compared to Austin and other places. We're just 45 minutes away from that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think so. There are a couple of things. One, the city of Richmond is not the metropolitan area of Richmond. Mm-hmm. So I, for one, see Confederate flags all the time, but that is probably because I live right at the city and county line. Mm-hmm. So what has happened is the, there are people who have, uh, who have who flee uh, the city of Richmond precisely because it has become those things. It feels more diverse to them. It feels like a major cultural shift has happened in the city. And they live in Hanover, right? right. And they live in parts of Enrico. But they are still participating in the greater Richmond sort of cultural center. So the city of Richmond um, may misrepresent and may overstate the extent to which how diverse or progressive this area is. Listen, I got lost going down into Hanover a couple weeks ago, and I'm not kidding. I texted my uh, friend and colleague and said, where the hell am I and how do I get out of here? Because there are huge signs signs about, um, you know, like homemade signs, which to me just somehow made them more uh, insidious because it meant somebody sat down and by hand on a huge piece of wood made a sign and planted it in their front yard about how Obama is a socialist and Trump is going to save us, right? Or that God bless Donald Trump because he's going to save America. And these were not one or two. So these are not outliers, but there were streams of these things all throughout Hanover. Those people are as much a part of Richmond as the sort of newcomers are. And we're, you know, I think we that can sort of paper over I think the sort of ideological core of this place, you know, five miles, I think, outside of the center city in any direction, and you've got a very different sort of cultural feel. Now, why why we don't see the sort of sustained attacks, I think, on, on um, monuments here is, again, I think there's a vacuum that is n- not, again, necessarily the fault of people, but 
because we have some other very serious sort of economic inequality issues in Richmond, I think people are kind of preoccupied, right? I think especially communities of color here in Richmond kind of have their hands full, right? They're dealing with a vastly, deeply unequal school system. Um, They've got just sort of shorter term, more immediate needs. And I don't think monuments have risen to the level of sort of sustained focus. But also to me, this feels very American, right? The idea that you would have an economically progressive city in the heart of the Confederacy is in many ways poetic because that is what the United States of America is for many of us, those of us who are here because of uh, enslavement as the descendants of uh, the formerly enslaved. This country becomes one of the wealthiest countries in the history of mankind to a significant degree on the fact that it participated in the slave trade. It makes sense to me that an economically progressive city then would be built on the remains of the enslaved. It makes sense that we wouldn't be able to reconcile monuments uh, to national traitors, which is, you know, another way to maybe understand the Confederates, um, those who had withdrawn from the nation state. Uh, It makes sense that we would have that in a city that also proclaims itself to be racially diverse and progressive, because those two ideas are actually always in tension with each other. And in many ways, at least for me as an African-American, legitimizes my experience of being black in this country. It at least makes visible to me the contradictions of this country um, in a way that are always present in my life. Um, So it makes sense to me, actually, that Richmond would be so conflicted. It is, you know, it is for me an example of the conflict that still drives everything about this country. Mm. Uh, I, wow, I, 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 was also blown away, as many people were, by the the words of New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu. Mm-hmm. He is, of course, Louisiana royalty. Mm-hmm. Remember, yeah. Mary Landrieu, and um, he's the white mayor of New Orleans. This is now uh, more than a decade after the the huge trauma of Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And in taking down their statues, and there were protests there in Stars and Bars, he said. Quote, the Confederacy was on the wrong side of history and humanity. It sought to tear apart our nation and subjugate our fellow Americans to slavery. This is the history we should never forget and one that we should never again put on a pedestal to be revered. Close quote. And I try to drive that with when I do talk to to. I wouldn't say apologists, but people are okay with the status quo. Mm-hmm. They can say, I can look at the Confederate flag where I can look at a monument of, of the Confederate president. Um, Mm-hmm. Jefferson Davis, and I could separate that from the institution right. of slavery. Right. Uh, there's a way of kind of, um, I don't know if it's hair splitting, but I, mm-hmm. I'm celebrating valor and uh, courage right. and mothers sending their sons off to battle. Is it right. possible to do that? I mean, in your experience, mm-hmm. or, is, that a, is that a way of kind of self-assuaging? It is. So here's the thing. Monuments are not uh, family memorials. They're public memorials. And this is what public me- public memory is important to how society functions, right? Public memory says that this is not only um, something that a society has decided is important, but the society has decided that this represents us. So what we put out in public to say represents us as a society, when you make it a memorial to um, slavery, it is a constant reminder to African Americans that they are never included in the definition of citizenry. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. There's there's no other way around that. If you wanted to put Jefferson Davis's uh, face on your front yard, 
right? This would be a very different thing because you think that it represented, again, your family's commitment to, um, uh, yeah, their their courage in participating in the war as Confederate soldiers. That would be a different thing. But public actually does mean something. And it's just this long—it's just an example in a long history of making sure that in both public and private life in this country, African Americans are never included in we, right? They are we we are always they when the question is who is a citizen. That's what it means to have public memorials to slavery, whether people are brave or not. Um, you know, despots are always brave. That's part of usually how you become one, um, or at least certainly brave enough to engage in conflict and war. So people saying that they can separate those things is generally a privilege to be able to do so, right? If I have the privilege of creating distance between myself and something horrible, I will probably do it because I'm a human being. I think what was interesting about um, Mitch Landro's case, a colleague and a friend and I were just talking about this yesterday, and she reminded me, she said, you know, Mitch has skin in the game, right? By which she meant Mitch is related to non-white people. He comes from a diverse uh, family, racially and ethnically diverse. And I think that does change the equation. Mm. I think there is something about having the distance from slavery to say, when I look at that monument, I can separate that from the horribleness of enslavement, that really what you're saying is I don't have any skin in the game of that conversation. And I think one of the things that is always the sort of crucible for humanity, especially in a modern society, is are you willing as an individual, as a person, to sacrifice for something for which you don't have any skin in the game? Right. So I think about these things, for example, when I try to show up for uh, causes that I believe in, even though I'm not a member of that community, it means standing up for queer rights. Right. Or it means standing up for immigrants or it means of which I'm not a member of that group. But I always have to crucify myself and think of myself and go, yeah, but this is when it matters. When you don't have any skin in the game, what are you going to do? Uh, and so I just always think of people when they can say how sort of casually they have this sort of academic intellectual distance from public memorials is that this is actually when it matters most about who you are. Your relationship to something that is by design, designed and intended to be there to remind me that I can never be part of this community, that I am never included in the word public. Who are you in that moment? And if you can intellectualize in that moment, right, that just tells me something. And it's important information for me to know. Um, and I think we do that. I understand the desire to do it because it's certainly much more comfortable. It's a more comfortable way to live. Uh, but comfort is generally the enemy of progress. Um, and so I think we have a lot of comfort here in the city for lots of reasons. And it seems to be that there is this equilibrium, whether you think it's a sturdy equilibrium or an uneasy equilibrium. You have, I believe that that one of the newspaper columnists here wrote something for The Economist last year about mm -hmm. the election and said that one of the lasting truths about this former capital of the Confederacy is that uh, the whites still control economic power while right. the African-Americans control political power. Mm -hmm. And it seems like uh, nobody wants to rock that. You haven't That's seen right. protests left and right. I thought... Uh, Dr. Tressy, that there was a Gladwellian tipping point after the Dylan Roof massacre oh, in South yeah. Carolina yeah. with the Confederate flag. You saw the governor of South Carolina more than nominally say, it's time to take this down. Right. You saw a bunch of activists at Ole Miss say, you will never see the stars and bars at a football game again. You saw a true tipping point where that became, um, finally, we come to terms with the fact that 
I guess it, it, it tipped into taboo, where in the past, even if you were a John McCain running in 2000, you could, you could ascribe say, it to tradition that's right. and everything not. And I thought that that would follow through to this right. debate over monuments right now. Mm-hmm. And you see no shortage of articles if you go on Google News, is Richmond next, is Richmond next, right. is Richmond next. Most people here seem to think that uh, it's, it's not going to go there. Yeah. See, and I, I tend to agree again, newcomer and always keep that caveat in mind. But again, social change doesn't fall from the sky. You know, something when something feels like it's, you know, we're in a zeitgeist and something's happening, like there's a moment. Sometimes what tends to happen is that blinds us to the fact that those moments happen because people on the ground have been doing hard work for a really long time. And then something sort of, you know, big happens and then all of these things tend to converge and it looks like big change that is beyond our power. But really what has to be in place usually for those huge moments to become huge moments is people have to have been working on those things for a very long time. Without that infrastructure of on the ground, day-to-day hard work of organizing people to think about these hard subjects that people do not want to talk about, when the zeitgeist happened, it may not happen for you. And so I wonder, so I know the people, I knew Brie Newsom from uh, Charlotte and the group that she was a part of, who was very part of sort of that um, uh, uh, interstate coalition of people who was moving that conversation forward in North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and other places, right? They've been working on that for a long time. And so that a moment happened post- um, Charleston massacre is true, but it isn't true that it's just necessarily going to fall down on a place and happen. People have to be will ready. You know, you got to be ready. It's like um, uh, football. So I know a little about it, and I know this: you, you got to be in position to catch the ball, hmm. right? Uh, and I'm not sure if we've got all the players in position for, uh, like I said, lots of reasons. Uh, the one of which being what you just mentioned. I think that economically, the purse strings in this city are still deeply ingrained in the history of this city. And um, that creates a lot of incentives for people to not agitate. Hmm. I will grant, Dr. Tressy, you are not my racial confessor. I love that piece in Slate. (laughs) I feel like I do owe you a psych copay or three (laughs) for this conversation. (laughs) And I will accept it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do it in kind in breakfast or margarita or something you already promised me. That is acceptable. Just don't Direct message the invites. I have to email you. That's um, right. I'd say my tipping point here um, by way of biography is we came here to this city. This is where my wife was born and raised. Uh, we were in New York beforehand. My son was premature, needed help. And uh, my wife's parents have provided help in spades, mm-hmm. but especially one teacher at the preschool here. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharon, I won't call you out by last name or anything, but uh, I just remember uh, in that year of preschool, there was a an evening um, show and tell where the kids were allowed to come in their pajamas and everything Uh and bring something that is important to them. That Why is it important to them? Mm -hmm. And um, they sat in a circle around Sharon, who's African-American, whose family has been in Virginia for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And she said, what I would like to share, and she shared this with a bunch of four-year-olds, is the book documenting the ownership of my great-great-grandma. And I looked around in the room And I said, there are Southern Baptist white kids in here. There are African-American kids in here. There are Jewish kids in here. There's a Jehovah's Witness being taught by the descendants of slaves. And Mm. uh, moreover, this preschool is on Monument Avenue. Mm. And how does Miss Sharon feel when she comes in and sees those statues? Can she make the same cognitive separation that, oh, that's talking about valor and these are people honoring bravery versus they are genuflecting before an institution that 
subjugated my family, physically abused, tormented, even murdered my family. Mm. And that was my tipping point. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, you know, the psychopay and whatnot, I couldn't get that out of my head. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized I had skin in the game. When Mm. I'm going to be in this city, here's someone who helped my weak son thrive. And she's like family to me. And um, Mm -hmm. what does this mean to her? She never brings this kind of stuff up. But Mm -hmm. this is the city that we're going to inherit. Yeah. And I I mean, I think that's a... Um, what we often want to have happen is we want social change without uh, individual discomfort. The problem is people are going to have to get real uncomfortable first. And usually that discomfort comes in recognizing the humanity and people who are different from us um, and feeling personally connected to them. And we do a lot to make sure that never happens, right? We, we buy homes in neighborhoods where everybody's just like us. We send our kids to schools that where the kids will be just like them. We choose our social networks. We choose our school. You know, we do all of this stuff to make sure we never, ever, ever feel that kind of dis- personal discomfort. Um, but I am of the mind that that personal discomfort is about the only way that um, we nudge ourselves along because you got to be uncomfortable before you're willing to think about the world from someone else's perspective. And that's always a precursor for social change. I'd like you to close us out. Tell me what you're following, what's on your radar. You're you're entering into the summer mm-hmm. months, which yeah. is less busy for you. You're a person in demand. You put on the crazy miles. I think I saw you give a speech in South Africa. Yes, yes. That was, a. I mean, talk about thinking about your life, by the way. Um, being black American in a black country is, you know, there's just nothing quite like it. And I certainly uh-huh. had it before in other countries, but there's nothing quite like being, um, for me, being um, in South Africa and dealing, reckoning with what it had meant to be black in this country as opposed to elsewhere, what parts of me were American, what parts of me were black. It was fascinating. But yes, I had a wonderful time in uh, Johannesburg. And what are you following? What's on your radar now that we should all be following? And where uh, else are we going to see you? Gosh, you've been, let me just say this. Your work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR's Fresh Air, The Daily Show, Slate, The Atlantic, and bam, you've hit the apotheosis right now. Full disclosure. <laughs> you could, uh, I'll give you a special wristband. You could wear, Thank you. You, know, you could drop my name with impunity. No. Yes, I appreciate that, actually. <laughs> what else? All what else? access pass to the city. What else is going on? I mean, we have Let's a see. potential, you know, crisis brewing in D.C. If, if Congress ever wants to investigate or pursue right. anything, how much is that on your radar? I'm trying to stay the heck out of D.C. I've actually been in D.C. <laughs> three times this week. Uh, I've been in D.C. a lot lately. Uh, by nature of the, you know, virtue of the work that I do and um, some of the uh, people that I speak with. Uh, I'm in D.C. a lot. Let me just tell you this. I was in D.C. a lot before uh, this election because I served um, at the on um, the higher education working group under President Obama, which was quite amazing, an amazing experience. Uh, and then almost immediately thereafter, Trump is elected. So I was in the city right before the election and like three days after. Um and I thought, this place feels horrible. And I just keep waiting for it to rebound. And it still has it. I was just there this yesterday. I was like, this place still feels like it's like living under a dark cloud. It's a uh, Well, he don't, want, he don't want to be there. He wants to be in Florida. Yeah, he just, you know, weekend, just so. rain on it and then leave. I mean, it's really, really bad. Uh, His wife doesn't want to be there either. <laughs> no. And I, I got to say, uh, almost nobody else I speak to there wants to be there either. Uh, so, yeah, I'm like everybody, right? My eye is on what the budget 
budget fight is going to look like. Uh, you know, a, a nation's budget is its priorities, and the priorities of our national budget have never been mine, have never reflected my own. But this one is a particularly egregious, vicious sort of budget um, in that it attacks a lot of groups that I care a lot about um, and with whom I have ideological affinity. Um, it's a you know, it's a horrible budget. This is one of those places, though, where the inefficiency of uh, government may work in our favor. We have not had a, you know, uncontested budget pass and I don't know how long. So hopefully this would never become the budget, probably won't even be the skeleton of the budget that we end up working from. But still, to propose such a politically aggressive budget does give a lot of give me a lot of pause. And so I'll be following not so much what happens to the budget, because, again, I you know, I'm not so worried about anything being passed in this Congress. But I want to see where people line up on the budget, because I think this is a moment for the institutions that we've invested in, the DNC, political institutions, and the advocacy groups. I want to see how they line up on this budget, because we have been, I think, caught flat-footed by the level of politicking and organizing that's going to need to happen uh, in this administration. Mm. And I'm not feeling real confident yet that we've got the right people lined up on our side. Um, it doesn't feel progressive. They don't feel progressive enough for me. They certainly don't feel diverse enough for me. Um, I, I think too many people on the left, which is where I tend to fall ideologically as if that's a secret to people at this point, but <laughs> too many people on the left are kind of waiting for it to get back to politics as usual. And I'm really, really freaked out that we're going to wait so long that more of the Trump-Ryan, you know, uh, agenda will be implemented by the time we figure out that we're never going to have Qu politics question as question is, when do Barack and Michelle come back and never. kind of get off on vacation and, and roll never. up their sleeves and— never. That's Barack it. Obama was never interested in building the building that kind of political mm. machine. I don't know where the left got the fantasy that he was. He literally gave us every indication that he wasn't interested. You know, it wasn't like the Clintons who built the Clinton machine, you know, yeah. of which we're really, really still living off of, um, you know, in D.C. Obama never built that machine. I feel like they're going to do exactly what he always told us he was going to do. He's going to go back to, you know, he's going to build his library. I think he wants to build sort of a— you know, Clinton Foundation-esque type um, entity, um, and that's where his interest is. And I'm not going to judge that one way or the other. I don't know what it's like to be an Obama and have those choices. But I I mean, I've never thought that the Obamas were going to come back and build us a dream machine for either the Democratic Party or for progressives or leftists. And I think so far that's bearing out. I don't think he's ever coming back. Oh, Okay. Yeah, sorry. I, I know he's coming yeah. back to Richmond to give a speech. They're giving him a big, yeah, big sum to show up later in the year. Yep. And I would like to let people know they can have me for a fraction of the cost now. And talking about the fraction <laughs> of the cost, I wanted to thank you so much for coming here. In fact, I, I had embedded into our budget a drink or a coffee or breakfast with <laughs> Professor Trekkie. Heck no, we're going Applebee's. We're going full-fledged <laughs> Applebee's with three appetizers. Tressie McMillan Cotton, professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University, also a faculty associate with Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, author of Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of Four-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. One of my favorite reads of 2017. Highly Aww. recommended. I am flattered and honored that you finally joined me in Studio Doc. Thank you very much for having me. I really do appreciate you keeping at it until we made it happen. Uh, don't judge my crazy schedule as my heart. My heart was always happy to be here with you. Thanks and I'm going to be happy to be there with you at Applebee's and Unlimited Appetizer. <laughs>
Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can catch us and love us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, we're at FullDRadio. On Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Not yet on Snapchat uh, or Grinder or Thruster, but I will keep you posted. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. 